Hi folks, Beeble Pete here. I'm with the author of the book versions of Douglas Adams' Doctor Who stories, City of Death and The Pirate Planet, Mr. James Goss. Welcome. Hello. Starting with BBCI, doing Doctor Who interactives, then moving on to Big Finish Audios and beyond, perhaps we should move directly into book talk about The Pirate Planet. Could you perhaps describe your experience at Cambridge? Yes. The reason why I went to Cambridge was because I had read a brilliant biography of Douglas Adams called The Frood by Jem Roberts, and in it he'd been granted access to the Douglas Adams archive, which is stored by his family have granted it to St. John's College, which was mm-hmm. Douglas's college in Cambridge. And I applied to the estate and said, can I go and see if there's anything from the pirate planet in the archive? And they said yes. And... Uh, I emailed the archivist and said, do you have anything from the Pirate Planet? And she emailed back and said, well, I think we've got a few things. And it turned out to be the first draft of the Pirate Planet. And the way these things work, it took a while for me to realise what I had, because they will only give you one document at a time. And the reason for this is that, um, as you can imagine, it's quite easy, especially when these are loose-bound type sheets of paper, that you are going to get the things muddled up. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a matter that I could compare page one of document one with page one of document two, because you would have to have them issued individually. Uh, So I couldn't actually hold the two side by side. So it took a fair bit of compare and contrast before I realized that what looked like a rehearsal script of the Pirate Planet and what looked like Douglas's typescript handed in version of that were two very different things. And so Douglas's first ever draft of the Pirate Planet was formatted as a radio script and is incredibly long, uh, is well over two-thirds the length of a standard Doctor Who script. And basically two-thirds of it had been thrown away in the process of making the glory that is the Pirate Planet. Um, And when I realised that... uh, we were able to get copies of the original first draft out of the archive okay. and also copies of the rehearsal script, which was still far too long to make a practical television episode of Doctor Who out of. So I basically had two sets of source material as well as the broadcast version of the Pirate Planet. You've got the challenge of producing something at least a little bit in Douglas's style. Actually, that bit was easy. Um... It's certainly easier on the Pirate Planet than on City of Death, because on City of Death, there's a lot of word count to fill up, and you're aware that you're trying to bask in the style of Douglas Adams, and that's the thing that you should not do. (laughs) With the Pirate Planet, it was a lot easier, because because of the sheer volume of new dialogue that had to be fitted in, Mm -hmm. my place as a novelizer is mostly just he said, she said, and then moving on. Uh, You know, it was my job, really, to make sure that all of this glorious, rich, undiscovered seam of Douglas Adams' dialogue was presented to the public. Lovely. And to get out of the way as much as, as possible. There you go. Um, that's, that's my job uh, on, on that. Uh, you know, just to try not to drown it um, in me. And, you know, there are bits where, where there's stuff of me in there. Uh, but hopefully it doesn't get in the way of all of the Douglas Adamsiness, because then that would be annoying. There you go. Yeah, he's it's it's wonderful and it's full of fun. The first draft of the Pirate Planet is is just lovely. 
you can see that uh, by the time the thing it gets into rehearsal, from from all the little margin notes that have been scribbled on the rehearsal draft, you can see that people have stopped finding the Pirate Planet funny. <laughs> uh, you know, this thing has been through too many drafts for people to be laughing at it anymore. Yeah. And the great thing about this first draft of the Pirate Planet is this is a man whose jokes have not been laughed at yet, except by him. People tend to think of things as classic, but they forget that somebody has to actually trudge through um, putting something through before it can even attain that. Yeah, and it's it's just that first draft of the Pirate Planet is pure invention. It's a man who puts ideas in because he thinks they're funny, and because no one has yet to turn around to him and say, that's not how... Douglas, Mr. Adams, that, that is not how humour is done, that is not how Doctor Who is done. Bureaucracy uh, again. Yeah, but, you know, at the time, the BBC had very little money because of hyperinflation, which is that lovely phrase where most Doctor Who fans can describe the, the economic circumstances of the late 1970s much better than any trade econ economist, because, dear God, we've seen Underworld. Yeah, Graham Williams' curse. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so terrible that Graham Williams is blamed for so many things when you're just there going, but, but that's like... I don't know, it, it seems so terribly unfair to blame a man for the economic circumstances that crippled the entire country. The 70s in Britain was a strange thing, I gather. Yep, just the whole idea that when you started trying to make Doctor Who at the start of the year, by the end of the year your budget would be worth 30% less. Invisible Enemy has so much money thrown at it, but it's so early in the series. Yes, uh, exactly, and then can't remember what that series ends with. Is it The Invasion of Time, that series? It is. And, you know, The Invasion of Time, dear God, they actually managed to go out on location. They managed to build Gallifrey. They managed to do so much with so little money. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that they still managed to fit in a really, really good spaceship model effect shot as well. These were people trying. I wanted to mention the, the, the note that you put in about the change to the TARDIS console room. And it, it seemed quite interesting that they should change it at the end after blowing it up. It, it actually reminded me of, of the use of the TARDIS at the end of the Invasion of Time, where it went a bit wild. This book allowed you to do quite a few things outside of the budget, because you had that source material to work with. Are, are, are there changes in tone? Um, what's your feeling on the change in tone between the television serial and the book? Good question. Um, I hope the book feels expensive and epic. Um, I know damn well the TV series is trying to be expensive and epic, but the problem every time I watch The Pirate Planet, and as you can imagine, I've now watched The Pirate Planet quite a few times, hmm. um, is there are things that Doctor Who fans say that I'm just not buying about The Pirate Planet. Like People talk about the brilliant costume that the captain has. And I'm going, it's rubbish! <laughs> and, you know, people talk about this wonderfully complicated design of the captain, and you go, it bloody isn't! It's yeah. cardboard! It's, it, it's horrible! The bar has moved. Yeah, and it's, you know, I, I, it's a bit of a struggle um, to get beyond that. And, you know, it's... It's strange. The captain is such a strange figure in the Pirate Planet in that, you know, his, his dialogue is really, really very rich. Um, and to give it to an actor in that era of Doctor Who and to expect any subtlety to come out is perhaps asking too much. Mm -hmm. um, 
but oh, is it Robert Purchase? Bruce Purchase? Bruce Purchase. Bruce Purchase. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are. He does manage some wonderful moments of delivery, such as postpone. Um, <laughs> but it's it, it's a very very strange performance, and I I just don't think it's a performance that's helped by the costume because it's it's. I mean, I, I think part of the pathos that Adams was going for in the script is that it's terribly hard to take the captain seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, this is the brilliant thing that Douglas Adams was doing, whereby he creates a Doctor Who villain who it is terribly hard to take seriously, even though he's actually very, very serious. But it's also a wonderful piece of misdirection because you are not supposed to ever spot the real villain. Right. And the stage directions make it absolutely clear that you're not supposed to notice the nurse enter scenes. It's almost as though she just appears and disappears from the shadow. Great. Um, and what Douglas Adams is doing is so subtle and so clever because he's basically creating a Doctor Who villain who's a Doctor Who villain in block caps so that you don't notice that there's a real villain lurking right. on the sidelines until she emerges. Right, but even then, the performers end up doing what Mr. Adams used to complain about, which is seeing the jokes in the script and kind of ratcheting up a bit. Yes, because, you know, you, the, the captain is never less than full blast, which makes it annoying. But also, the problem with the actress playing the nurse, and this is really quite hard because it sounds like I'm having a go. Rosalind Lloyd. The actress playing the nurse is very well cast to play a nurse but not necessarily very well cast to play Queen Sanxia. Gotcha. So when it turns out and she goes, it was me all along, you kind of go, oh. <laughs> if they'd cast somebody who was perhaps a bit more famous, you know, if they'd cast, let's say, is it Susan Angle from uh, Stones of Blood to right. play the prince? You've got an amazing nurse, but you just spent the entire time going, the nurse is so creepy! And then she turns around and goes, but it is I, Queen Zanxia. You'd then have this thing where you'd have the nurse and the captain both chewing the scenery and very little room left for Tom Baker to do anything and have a little bit of a nibble at a chair. <laughs> yeah, there's a point. So it's, it's, it's actually in some ways an insoluble actor's problem. Hmm. You know, do you cast somebody so big as the nurse and then make them, so, make them seem so small? Right. right. Point, people have seen her in, I don't know, Bergerac or Shoestring or whatever. We go, we'd be going... What's she doing playing the nurse? And then in episode four, they go, aha, I knew it all along. There you go. Quite, it's quite a tough one that the other struggles that the budget has is that it's quite clear from Adams' script that Zanxia is a desert planet, and it has to be a desert planet. Mm-hmm. What little I know uh, of uh, astronomical geology and environment and and how gravity works is basically that Zanxia could only be a rubble-strewn ruin because there's no time for there to be a stable Oh, Zanak, Zanak. Zanak, yes. Because as it moves, it just... The entire ecosystem would collapse every right, time. Right, right. And it's clearly written by Adams as uh, a wasteland, a hot, arid wasteland. And that's fine, except that all the location filming takes place in Wales. Exactly. And, you know, it's it, it's an early example of, of the sheer horror that BBC Wales has to deal with on a daily basis. To produce so, something that colourful in somewhere that rainy. Yes, and this is before the days of being able to properly grade the film. Right. Uh, and so you, you have this utterly insoluble madness of the difference between studio and film, because in studio, Zanak is this bright arid fantasy cityscape 
And then on location, it's wet. It's right. so wet and grim and drab. It's hardly perfect. No, and it, you, you can't quite tie the two up, which means that every time the production cuts from studio to film, it's really hard because you're, you're trying to sell yourself on a vision that doesn't actually work. Uh, and, you know, the, I, I make a lot of it in the notes, but the fact that there's an entire subplot of Douglas Adams' first draft of Romana re- leading a revolution, which is replaced by these shots of Mary Tam walking through a wet field in boots. Exactly. And she has this look on her face as she's doing it where she's like, I know, I just know I'm going to have to scrape all this mud off with a twig by myself. <laughs> uh, it, it just... Has there ever been a drabber-looking Doctor Who moment The Mary Tam and six men in orange duvets picking their way through a wet field in Wales? The landscape seems to suck the colour from the garb. Yeah, and it's it, it's it's really it it it's a curious thing that they decided to go to Wales to do the location filming, and it's it's easy for me to point the finger of blame at Pennant Roberts because he I was, was yeah I was going to say, and because you know he knew the area quite well, um, and I think somebody told me he had a holiday home quite nearby, um, that but you know if ever there was a story that needed a Gerard's Cross quarry. It's the pirate planet for its location film. There's no, there's absolutely no reason why they needed to be in Wales. Douglas writes a quarry in, and it doesn't get used. I know it's 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 very very strange. Uh, it's such a strange production choice. It doesn't even make sense of the program's logic because the way the script is written, the mountains are covered in snow, which slowly melts because obviously. Zanak has suddenly moved to somewhere with two suns, and so the snow on the mountain is gradually melting. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're supposed to, at the very least, you're supposed to get snow-capped mountains. Yeah. And you have this absolute insanity of whenever you have a model shot of um, the bridge, the bridge, it's in this glorious sunlight on this bleach, bleach world, and then you cut to Mary Tam and some extras in the misty rain. Yeah. Uh, it just it doesn't make sense. It completely fails to make any um it doesn't tie itself up. What's your take after having worked on so many Doctor Who properties of of doing this sort of work? Um the the annoying thing uh is the uh if you write a funny script people expect that you just write funny stuff. Right. Um, and then if you write something that isn't funny, people go, well, why isn't that a funny one? Um, and you occasionally find that from people who are commissioning you. Uh, You're setting precedence again. Yeah, and the, the good thing I have is that I, I actually do a lot of work that isn't Doctor Who. Do you want to touch on some of the other work? Feel free to plug it. Sure. Um, my first ever proper novel came out last year called Haters. That's gone down quite well. The movie rights to that have just been bought, which was is very lovely. Um, but if you thought buying a house was slow, wait until somebody buys the rights to something you've done as a movie. Welcome to development hell. I know. Um, it's very lovely. It does mean that at parties, if, if I run out of things to say, I'll say, I'll say, can I tell you, allow me to tell you about my movie? I would <laughs> stop talking to you, which is nice. Cause I can then get on with drinking and eating peanuts. There you go. Um, but no, I'm I'm currently working on several other 
book ideas, which it would be foolish for me to tell you about because some of them may very well not happen. Understood. Uh, but, uh, you know, I get to work on some really lovely stuff. And uh, very, very bizarrely, uh, in January I should be writing my first ever volume of poetry, which sounds obnoxious and insane, but when you find out what the project is, you'll laugh. Because uh, it's a very, very odd and lovely thing to be asked to do. Watching uh, this space. But it is it is this glorious thing at the moment where people say, well, what's next for you? You go, well, I, I, I'm taking January to write some poetry. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you should see the looks on people's faces. Uh, I can imagine the look on your face now. <laughs> oh, God, it's such a lovely project. Oh, poetry is wonderful. It doesn't happen to be narrative fiction, but it's a big, wide universe out there. But I love the fact that my answer to any question is, I'm terribly sorry, I'm writing a volume of poetry. Absolutely. And you have to say it that way. It's required. I know. I'm terribly <laughs> sorry, I'm writing a volume of poetry. And just chatting to my boyfriend. It's like, what are you doing in, in January? And I'm like, oh, you know, apart from writing my poems, darling, I'm all yours. Lovely. I promise not to use that as my ringtone. I'm terribly sorry, my darling, I'm writing a volume of poetry. <laughs> but if you're going to perform it for a ringtone, then we're going to be in trouble. I know, I, I just love the idea that, you know, I've, I've worked with people who've gone on to become performance slam poets, um, yeah. including this insane woman who was the boss of the BBC's cult website before me, and she was terribly posh. Mm. And we said, oh, what do you do in the evening? She went, oh, darling, I do black rap. Oh, my giddy aunt. <laughs> she, she'd do her poetry slams in this bizarre mix of Notting Hill and Jamaican. Okay, uh, that's pretty special there. In lieu of ending this on a positive note, um, yeah, let's let's go for something positive. Let's go for something fun. Apart from my volume of my forthcoming volume of poetry, yeah, <laughs> I love I love the idea that I'm taking some time out from my from my busy career to write poetry. Yeah, well, it's, it's probably Actually, a good thing. A slim volume. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>